0: At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. This winter, we're taking a fresh look at a familiar story through our series, Jonah, At Odds with God. Tune in now as we face the same choice Jonah did, to receive God's mission or to resent it. Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you guys. Hey, if you have your Bibles, we're in the book of Jonah this morning. We're going to continue our series called Jonah at Odds with God. And uh, I just got to say this quick that ryan king over there um i think colton did a better job up on stage than you do like that guy that kid is solid you see that like it was not uh, <laughs> there it is there it is should have known better um but yeah if you have your bibles jonah chapter two is where we're going to kind of be kind of camped out for a bit and so as we start the day's sermon here's the i have a question that i just I kind of general question have you ever heard this phrase god will never give you more than you can handle Anybody? Yep. don't have to be a Christian to have heard that phrase. In fact, the phrase comes from, and most people get it from this, the book of 1 Corinthians um, chapter 10, verse 13. It says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And so here's the thing with that phrase, right? If you've been a Christian long enough, you know this. It's not true. There's nothing true about that phrase. In fact, we take that idea of temptation and we've, you know, we've manipulated it like we do as humans, and we made it about ourselves and said that God won't let us suffer any more than we can handle. And it's a complete lie. He always, he obviously will do it. If you've been a Christian long enough, know this. He's gonna push you, he's gonna stretch you, he's gonna take you to a place that you never thought you could go. And the reason for that is because it's not about you. It's not about us, it's about Him. He will take us to a place of dependence on Him, if we don't do it on ourselves. He will do that. He will pull us, He will stretch us, over and over again, and sometimes when He pulls us and He stretches us, and He uses us in ways we could never imagine, like, it's in a form of discipline. Sometimes He disciplines us, and that discipline comes in the form of mercy. We have to understand that discipline does, is mercy. We don't like discipline, though. We don't like to use that term, right? Like, we like discipline when it's with kids. We all like very disciplined kids, amen? Like, they're not running around service being crazy and all that, right? We like very disciplined kids. We like it when it's about kids, but we don't like it as adults, do we? Most of us don't like to be disciplined. We don't like reprove. We don't like to be chastised in any way, shape, or form. I'm an adult. I'm a grown man. Don't come at me with that. And... You know, as, as a young Christian, I remember, like, I was a bit on the crazier side. We went to a very conservative church, so I got talked to about my clothes from time to time with khakis and a button-up. Wasn't okay at the church I went to. And I, I, I memorized the verses. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Don't judge me. I'd always go old school like the King James. Judge ye not. Judge ye not for ye, lest ye be judged. I had it memorized. Right? I, I was good with that. And I would always think, about well, it, Matthew chapter 7, verse 5. You want to go at me? Take the log out of your own eye so you can see clearly so you can take the speck out of your own. I had it memorized. Don't come at me with that. We do that. Like being, like we just don't like being disciplined. And it's scary because as a church, we just don't do it anymore. Right? We're we're afraid to discipline people when they need to be disciplined. But we have to understand that God uses that discipline. He uses it to show mercy. Like when we discipline our kids, it's not just to be mean. They think that. But it's to protect them, to keep them safe. To not let, you know, not let bad things happen to them. And every once in a while, if you were a kid like I was, your dad just lets you do it because he's told you 50 times and eventually you're going to learn, right? You're going to learn the hard way. But we do those disciplines. We, enter, we have those disciplines for our kids so that we can teach them to be good humans. That we can bring them up in the Lord. Right? Discipline is important and it's mercy. The writer of Hebrews writes this in Hebrews 12, um, verse 5 and 6. He says, have you forgotten that the exhortation addressed to you as sons? My sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he re- receives. But discipline from the Lord is a good thing. And what we're going to see today is that as we see this discipline kind of evolve, if you will, in Jonah chapter 2, that it's not just discipline that we it's severe mercy one writer writes it that way that this discipline is a severe mercy our big idea this morning is God's severe mercy is terribly helpful and when I first read that I was like terribly helpful what do you mean because it's terrible sometimes it's not easy it's not easy to be worked through it's not easy to be told you're wrong it's not easy to go through some of the things that God's going to push us through it's difficult it's terribly helpful at times why? Because the opposite of being in that disciplined mercy is a life apart from him. And that's scary. We don't want to go down that road. And so as we kind of opened chapter one last week, we talked about who Jonah was. That God called Jonah to go to Nineveh. Remember that? He didn't want to go. He hated Nineveh. They were his enemies. He was a bitter old prophet. And he said, I don't have time for that, God. So as God called him to Nineveh, what did he do? He went the opposite way, jumped on a boat, paid people to take him across to Tarshish, which is like a three or four week ride across the Mediterranean. For, why? To stall God so he would destroy Nineveh. It's terrible. He was a bitter old man, didn't want to do any of it. God said, I'm not done with you sent a storm. We talked about that supernatural storm that you would never see anywhere else. So what a supernatural storm comes out, the sailors are terrified and through their fear of who God is and what he was doing there, they came to know the true God, the Yahweh God, who created the dry land and the sea. And they sacrificed to him and made vows to him. And they struggled with throwing Jonah overboard. Jonah told them that what had to happen. You want this to stop? Kick me overboard. And they wouldn't do it. They tried harder to go the other way. Like, maybe we can do it on our own. And ultimately, there had to have been a sacrifice. We talked about the wrath of God had to be satisfied. So they threw Jonah overboard. And that's where we pick up in verse 17 of of chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And as we see, what we're going to see here is that God uses that severe mercy for three things. He uses the severe mercy, right, to pursue us, to awaken us, and ultimately to save us. And here's where God's pursuing Jonah. Jonah's going the other way, and God says, no, I'm not done. I'm going to use you. Let's be clear, he didn't need Jonah. He wanted Jonah. Grabs Jonah, says, you're going this way. No matter what, I'm going to teach you. I'm going to show you why you're going that way. So this belly of the fish, we have to understand that this belly of the fish, right, this whole scene, it's not the VeggieTales version, right? You guys know what I'm talking about where they throw the cucumber overboard and he's bobbing in the water and the little grapes, that awkward staring battle where like, oh, what's going on? And then the fish opens its mouth and takes the cucumber into the depths. That's not at all what happened. And I'll be honest with you, for a long time in my life, I believed that. Right, like I did, like until like I really started really studying the word of God. Like I believe that for most of my adult life, I think I did. And so, um, what we're gonna see, I'm embarrassed. Okay, um, what we're gonna see here is that's not what happened. Jo- we pick up in chapter two, Jonah in the belly of the great fish, and he says this in verse one. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord in his, to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, "I called out to the Lord in my distress, and He answered me." Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. The, and the, the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters cl- closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. The weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountain's. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And we'll pause there for a second. So he wasn't bobbing in the water where a fish swallowed him up, right? He sank to the bottom of the Mediterranean. Weeds were wrapping around his head. He saw the roots of the mountains. In fact, Jonah looks at it and he says, to the belly of Sheol. And if you know what Sheol is, I, I wrote the definition down because I, I don't want you guys to confuse what it is, but in the Hebrew Bible, it's a place of darkness to which all dead go, both righteous and unrighteous, regardless of your moral choices that you made in life. A place of stillness and darkness, cut off from life and from God. He believed it to be hell, a dark place, a way apart from God. He was going down to the abyss and he called out to God. And this is a this is a new thing. Because in the Old Testament, the only way you really talked to God was to go to this holy temple. You didn't just drop your knees to the ground and pray to God back then. You had to wait for certain dates, certain days of atonement. You had to do certain things at certain times and go into the holiest of holies to have a conversation with God. So here's Jonah sinking to the abyss, to what he perceives is Hades, the underworld, the place of darkness. And he calls out to God. And the idea of his holy temple, here's what that idea of a holy temple is. It's, again, they believe that God abided in this holy temple. We now know you can't confine God by four walls. Right? Paul talks about that in Acts chapter 17 when he's talking to the Athenians. He tells them God's not confined by four walls. He's everywhere. He's all the time. He's infinite. We know that's one of his characteristics. He's everywhere at all times. But they believed that when Solomon built that perfect temple, and if you've ever read the Old Testament through and, ta- and it goes through like what it took to build this thing, it's a bit of a painful read because it talks like, I, I, the word cubit was like non-stop in there, right? Like cubit after cubit and this and that, the length, the width, the, all these kinds of things, right? That's what God wanted it to look like. And Solomon dedicated it to the Lord. And when he, when he dedicated to the Lord, he would say things like this. When your people stray from you and go to a far-off land in their sins, if they turn back to your temple and cry out for you, please hear them from your temple and rescue them. So he again, it was ingrained in Jonah that I'm gonna call out to the temple where God abides. Right? And he's calling out to it, and God heard him. Understand what that must have been like for Jonah. Because he didn't understand, like that's a new concept. I'm in the belly of Sheol. I'm in hell. And what he perceives is that. And you heard me, God. You saved me, God. The weeds wrapped around me. The idea of the land, like at the end of verse 6, where he's like, I went down to the land whose bars upon me forever. The bars were enclosing on him. It was like prison. And his fate was death. That's what he believed. It was over. I'm going to lay it all out there. God, please hear me. And what does God do? First, he pursues him, right? And then he shows mercy on Jonah. Not like Jonah thought mercy, but it was still mercy. He sent a fish, a giant fish to swallow him up. That was mercy for Jonah. That was his mercy. And when we think of God's mercy, so oftentimes we think this, health, wealth, and prosperity. Like, hey, it's all going to be good. Like, hey, maybe you discipline me a little bit, God. Maybe you're going to make times a little rough for me. But at the end of it, I'm going to come out with more money, more stuff, more great things. And what we have to realize, his mercy sometimes isn't that. In fact, majority of the times it isn't that. His mercy, hear me, is him. His mercy is God. His mercy is us having a relationship with him. Not stuff. Not things that we want. No, him. That's what his mercy is. We have to understand that. And what, what Jonah says in the end of chapter, or verse six, he says, yet you brought my life from the pit, O Lord my God. You brought me out of it. And he was thankful for the fish, right? It was, it was a good thing. He saved my life. The other option was a life apart from you is what he perceived in Sheol, a, part, a life from God, apart from God. That's what he believed was happening. And Jesus, or God, sending a fish to save him. What a wonderful thing, even though it was terrible. It was terribly helpful, wasn't it? It Saved his life. Jonah continues with this. When my life was spanning away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, to to your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But but I, with my voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. And I will... what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah up on dry land. And what we have to see here is that the idea of mercy isn't always what we perceive it to be. In fact, if you turn to me with, turn to me with uh, um, we're going to be in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter two, uh, 12. Paul says this, right? Paul, who is a fantastic human being at one point, right? He was doing great works for the Lord, doing great things writes this in 12, verse 6 through 7. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of my surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. You hear that? Paul, one of the greatest, he authored majority of the New Testament, had a great revelation, and God sent mercy to him in the form of discipline, a thorn in his side. Why? To keep him from being conceited, so that he wouldn't boast in himself. I'm sure Paul, Paul pleaded with God three times. Please take this away. And what did God respond to him in the next verse? But he, but the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. You have to understand that when we are so cool and we're so great, when everything's going perfect in our lives and nothing's going wrong and we're awesome, it's, we, we kind of don't need God. If you have everything, If if everything's perfect, what do we need God for at that moment? And so sometimes we have to be disciplined that way. Sometimes he's got to bring us down. Sometimes the weeds have to wrap around our heads. We have to see the, the roots of the mountains that way. We need to feel the bars enclosing on and it's like we're drowning, pulled and stretched so far beyond what we can handle that there's nothing else that we can depend on other than God. And Paul feels that. And in his humility, he says, yeah, it's good. I don't want it, but it's keeping me from being conceited. So oftentimes, as Christians, we can do that. We don't want to humble ourselves. We don't want to humble ourselves to church discipline or a friend coming to us and tapping us on the shoulder having a conversation with us about how we might be going astray. We don't like that. God uses his severe mercy to wake us up, and sometimes that awakening is a person. Sometimes we need to get slapped around a little bit. It's not easy. I mean, Jonah was getting slapped around by ways left and right. Wake up, Jonah. Stop going the direction you're going. I have a plan. Go this way. I'm going to make you go this way. I want you to go this way. What's he saying to you? What's he saying to us this morning? Have we been Christians long enough that when we're headed the wrong direction and somebody taps on the shoulders and we're so prideful that we don't want to take that little, hey, we love you and we'd love you to come back? James talks about it. In chapter 6 of James where he talks about it, going, hey, if anybody brings somebody back to the fold, right? It's a good thing. Why? Wow, he saved his soul. Sometimes discipline, sometimes that mercy that we see, that severe mercy protects us from being apart from God. And it's not easy. It's never been easy. I'll be honest with you. There's, I mean, being up here, sometimes you take things on the chin, right? You just do. People don't agree with me always. And I remember this was a while ago. Somebody sat me down and they read me the Riot Act. It was, it was, it was very difficult. If I be honest with you, um, they yelled at me. They were physically yelling at me, um, and it, it was tough. And I took it on the chin, and I left. And I, here's here's a Dave Varga moment, right? Um, I straight up wanted to fight him when I left. I was so angry with him. How dare you? How dare you come at me that way? And the reality of this is like, it's not, it, he wasn't right. He, he was just angry. He was a little annoyed and angry. None, nothing that he said was right. And I went home and I was just, oh, I was so angry. I, I, literally, I wanted, I, wanted, I wanted to fight him, which wasn't good because he was a lot, lot, lot older than me, right? It's just terrible to even think that, right? But, I got home and Laura and I were talking through that. And, and at the end of it all, a couple days later, I, I looked at her and I said, you know what, he's not 100% right. He's not. But he's probably not 100% wrong either. I can learn from that. And, and maybe, like, it hurt. I laid awake for days, weeks. It hurt. He, he attacked my character. He attacked my soul. He attacked what I believed was right. It hurt. Days. It just hurt. It just dug in there. And that's good. Because what if I didn't listen? You ever wonder that? What if pride settled in? I'm better than that. When no, that pride settles in as a leader of a church, it's a scary place to be. There's a pastor in, in, in South Carolina. I remember was a long time ago. But he, he, sat, he got sat down by his church. They said, hey, we don't like where you're going. It was the elders of his church. They did it right. You're drinking a little too much. We see you out at bars from time to time. We don't like where you're headed. Let's pull it back a little bit and work through this. And he said, no. He didn't want to take the discipline. I'll just start another church. So he went up the road, started another church. And people came. Why? He He was a very charismatic speaker. He was great. The church blew up. Five years after that, he was pulled over, drunk as could be, somebody who wasn't his wife in the car, it was a terrible moment. And if you take that, that reproof, that, that discipline from time to time, that it's good. It hurts. It's supposed to. You didn't you think it hurt Jonah to be in the water for that long? It hurt him. But he woke up to it. He woke up and he saw God for who he was. And he must have been astonished that God was actually, God hurt him and sent a fish, Right? And then he continues on in verse 8. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. He's talking to the Israelites. He's talking to his fellow Hebrews. He's talking to us, really. But at the moment, he's talking to his fellow Hebrews who had left God. They went away from him. They had every idol. They were worshiping everything but God. That's why God said, go to Nineveh. You're not listening. You're not repenting for those things. So if you're not going to do it, Nineveh will. I'll go to somebody that will. He's talking to those who pay attention to vain idols. They forsake their steadfast, the hope of steadfast love. The NIV writes it. They forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Listen to me. When we do those things, when we continually pursue the things of this world, we are forfeiting the grace that could be ours. We're forsaking the love. Like we know this. We hear all time. God's love is so big. It is so big. It is unfathomable how much he loves those who are his. It can't be contained. And when we, (laughs) I love technology. When we turn from that, we are forsaking it. We are forsaking that love. We're saying we don't need it. We don't want it. We're better off without it, God, because we have all this stuff. When, when you pursue the perfect body at the gym, idolatry. When you pursue bigger houses, bigger, better, faster cars, everything, more money, it's idolatry. When you make it about you, it's idolatry. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, he calls greed and covetousness idolatry, which basically means everything we do all day, every day. I'm super awesome on social media. Idolatry. Hear me. When you pursue anything other than who God is, when you pursue anything other than Him, it's idolatry. You're forsaking the love that is there for you. Why do we continue to do it? We can make fun of Israel all we want. Oh, they're so dumb. They keep just going and worshiping other things. We do the same thing. We're just not having, you know, we're not make copper idols, just worship other things. We worship money. We worship our bodies. We worship makeup. We worship clothes. And you can tell those things. You can tell it. And what is it? It's idolatry. And Jonah's saying, those who pay more attention to, uh, to idols are forsaking the love that God has for us. Stop it. He almost is, I wish he would just say that in the next verse. Stop it. Stop doing it. Focus on God. Worship him for who he is. Because That's what we're called to do. And he goes on in verse 9. And I love this posture because remember last week we talked about Jonah being that bitter old kind of arrogant prophet, right? His posture changes a little bit when he's drowning and the weeds are around him, right? Stuck in the belly of a fish for three days. That'll change real quick, right? You realize my dependence on God is more than anything else. So his posture changes and he says this. He goes, but with my voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you. Meaning this, what I have vowed I will pay. I'll go to Nineveh. I'll go to Nineveh, God. Right? Salvation belongs to the Lord. And with that phrase, I love it, Old Testament, the proclamation, salvation belongs to God. It's the gospel story. This is the gospel in the Old Testament. Salvation isn't sacrifice. Salvation isn't socioeconomic status. So, you know, salvation isn't what you know about the Torah. Salvation belongs to God. And as Jonah spends three days in the belly of a fish brought down to Sheol what he perceives to be Hades, it, apart from God, what does Jesus do for us? Comes down from heaven for you, for me. Hangs on a cross dies in the grave for three days. Jonah in the belly of the fish, three days later, God, with thanksgiving, pulls him out. Jesus in the grave for three days with thanksgiving. God raises him from the dead. To never die again, the grave could not hold him. And because it could not, God is able now to show mercy on all those who believe in him. If we confess with our mouths and we believe in our heart, as Paul says in Romans, he's faithful to save us. For all those who believe on him, who have picked, you know, chosen God to be his Lord and Savior, right? Mercy on us. Mercy upon mercy for us. And it's, it's not always going to be easy, right? Life is not like that. I mean, look around us. Look around what's going on right now. Like, if God, if God only gave us what we could handle, what are we, what are we, how do we say that to our brothers and sisters in Ukraine? Because I promise you this, they're being pushed. They're being stretched beyond anything they thought was ever going to happen to them. For us to sit back and go like, man, we got this. God, we, God you're never going to give me more. He does. He's going to push us. He's going to push you. He's died on the cross for us. His blood for our sins, mercy upon mercy for those who accept him as their Lord and Savior. And if you've never done that, this is that moment. This is the moment where you go, yeah, I'm at rock bottom. Man, the weeds are coming over me. I don't know what to do, God. Please save me. Humble yourselves to that moment. Humble yourselves to call upon the Lord and he's faithful to save faithful to Satan. And for those of us who have been Christians for a long time, maybe not a long time, but long enough, when we put our hope in things of this world, and we're all guilty of it, every single person in this room in some way, shape, or form puts our hope in things. We just do it. When we do that, we're forsaking the love that God has for us. We're saying, we don't need you, God. We need to wake up We need to, as a church, maybe slap each other around a little bit. Slap ourselves around a little bit. Say, wake up. We need to pursue him. And if we're not pursuing him, if we're only pursuing the things of the world, listen, it's going to get hard really quick. If you're pursuing the things of the world, you're freaking out right now. This world is crazy. It always has been. It's been up and down. Let's not make, you know, but it's crazy right now. What do we have? We have wars and rumors of wars. Anybody ever read that somewhere? Brothers will go against brothers and sisters against sisters, kids against parents, parents against kids. Anybody feel like that from time to time now? It is crazy. And if we're only hoping in this world, we're going to lose it. Your anxieties will be higher than they ever been. You don't know what to to do. You're turning it. You're seeking help any which way you can. You're trying to find solace in anything you possibly can. When our solace should be in God, in Christ alone, That's where we should put our faith in. That's where our hope is. Listen, it only ends one way. Make no bones about it. It ends one way. God on the throne. God on the throne. And if he's your Lord and Savior, Jesus is your Lord and Savior. It ends with you. He is faithful. In that moment, he is faithful to hold true to what he said he was going to do. You are saved. You will be with him in heaven. If you repent and believe, like listen, sometimes as Christians, we need to repent. We need to repent, we need to put aside those things that we were saying, God, I'm sorry. We need to humble ourselves. Please forgive me, bring me back to you, because I wanna serve you, I wanna glorify you. I want God to radiate from this place, from every single person there, from me, that when we leave here, that we don't go unchanged, that we don't go to work and just act like we normally act. That's scary that's what the Jews were doing and what did God do I'm done with you I'm gonna go to Nineveh like we have to understand that and I I coach basketball and I always say this I said this weeks ago the scariest place to be as a player is a place where the coach doesn't talk to you anymore he doesn't believe that you're going to work hard enough to change You're better than everyone else. Why would I waste my time? I've wasted my time week after week after week telling you to change and you won't do what we're asking you to do. And you're like, all right, fine. You're just gonna do what you do. Church, may we never be that. When God's calling us to do something, when he's calling us to change, when he's pulling us closer to him, when he's disciplining us, when we feel his severe mercy on us, may we not be a church that just ignores it and continues down the path of easiness, but we be a church that says, okay, God, enough's enough. It's not about me, it's about you. Let's pray. Dear God, our holy and heavenly Father, we are so, we're thankful for you. Right now, God, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Ukraine. We pray for everyone in Ukraine that's suffering. God, as your word goes out there in those subway tunnels, God, we pray that people will receive it that they'll feel it, that they'll come to know you, Lord, that your word will be proclaimed in all places there, God. Lord, let us not get comfortable here in our posh lives, God, but that we'll humble ourselves and return to you, that we'll turn to you and focus on you and, and say, it's about you, not about us, God. Save us from that. Help us not leave here unchanged from what we've heard and and what we've seen, God, that we'll go to work, that we'll go to what we do and just serve you and glorify you in our lives, that people will see you in us. God, we thank you for your son dying on the cross. And if there's anybody in here that needs to hear that, that needs to pray, God, that we pray that they'll drop on their knees today and just pray, save me, God. I'm a sinner and I want to serve you. I want you as my Lord and Savior let us not leave this place without doing that we love you in jesus name amen thank you for joining us as we study god's word together we would love to hear how god is moving in your heart and get you connected into the woodside bible church family head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today